Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest is Adam Matthews. He is the Chief Responsible Investment Officer of the Church of England Pensions Fund and Chair of the Transition Pathway Initiative, amongst many other leadership roles influencing and shaping the frameworks within which pension funds operate as they approach their responsibilities towards and impacts on the climate change agenda. So welcome, uh, Adam Matthews, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Tilly and I are absolutely delighted to have you with us today. We've been really looking forward to interviewing you. We thought that we would start the podcast with just understanding a little bit about your background and how you migrated into your uh, directorship at the Church of England Pension Fund. Sure. Well, look, great to be with you and thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I mean, my my background was uh, very much in politics and policy, so ended up in a pension fund was the, the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing. And so somewhat surprised with where um, my career path has taken me, but nonetheless, it was a brilliant grounding for what I'm doing at the moment. So um, worked in sort of developing legislation on climate change, on, on environmental issues, Ran a member of Parliament's office, worked um, worked in supporting drafting speeches, doing all that kind of work, and then set up a, an NGO as well that, that focused on environmental sustainability issues in Central West Africa, and sort of collaborated with lots of other entities. So, yeah, sort of path that was environmental, but much more at the sort of policy, political end, working with politicians in sort of cross-party way, and then um, ended up move into a role of of developing the policies on ethics and the investments and to aligning the ethics with the investments to the Church of England national investing bodies and from that role have now landed where I am as the chief responsible investment officer for the Church of England pensions board so um yeah which is an interesting role and tell us what does it actually mean to be a responsible investment officer Great. If you've got an idea, please let me know. um, (laughs) I mean, there's a few, I think there's a handful of people with that job title. It's a new sort of job title that hasn't, I mean, job titles, job titles, but it, 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 I sit alongside the chief investment officer, which obviously much more familiar um, kind of function within, in investments, but we have a dual head of the investment team. Um, So Mike uh, Pratton is the the CIO for the pensions board and I'm the, um, CRIO and really the two of us run an investment team with the objectives of ensuring that we invest in a way that 
pays the pensions that we have an obligation to pay, um, but ensure that we can pay them by investing in a way that's consistent with the ethics and the values of the Church of England. And so really we work hand in hand um, with the team. I suppose in time you would hope that this is a role that's embodied in one person, but with the rise of responsible investment, ESG, and, and obviously the additional sort of application of ethics that the Church of England sort of applies, you, you can see why it's in a sort of separate role at the moment. And it's a role that means that you need to really understand what you're invested in, your responsibilities, and how you can sort of ensure that you generate the returns, but in a way, as I say, that's consistent with your values. I'm very interested in that ethical background, the ethical drivers that will inform your investment philosophy. And maybe you could say a little bit about that, but also just sort of interested in, for you personally, engaging with your own sort of values within that role. Does that um, motivate you in a different way to create impact? The starting point is that you're stewards of the assets. I mean, we have them on trust from for our sort of prospective beneficiaries. Um, the church structure is slightly different to a traditional pension fund in the sense that the, the beneficiaries, particularly the, the, the clergy, they, they themselves don't contribute. It's part of their package that when they retire, they receive a pension, but they haven't actually sort of contributed. The contributions come via a lot of the collections that are made in churches um, in the plate when churches used to come together um, in person and obviously more in sort of electronically collected um, contributions now but obviously as, as an organization where your beneficiaries are members of the clergy we have um, 40,000 members of the clergy but also people that work in the church and for the church and so therefore we have a clear set of ethics that people that we have sort of got in the Church of England and so we go into an effort to really understand what does that mean in the way that we invest we we do that through a um, something called the Ethical Investment Advisory Group, which sort of is a is a boiling pot of theologians. There's bishops there. There's um, ethicists. There's also people that are experienced in the markets, and we sort of bring this sort of spectrum of expertise together in that independent body to help shape the kind of advice that mm-hmm. they can provide us to navigate that connection between the values of the organization and the practical reality of investing and the need to make that return mm-hmm. and how can you bring all that together and do it in a, in a way that is credible so so that's the sort of one way that we sort of seek to do this i mean the other aspect is in, in many instances clearly environmental social governance issues are direct financially material aspects that we need to be integrated in understanding in the way that we invest and in addition we have an ethical approach as well that overlays on onto that as well. So they sort of these things come together, and yeah, I, I mean it's just a hugely privileged position to be in mm. to be able to sort of shape the way that you invest, the way that you steward your assets, and to have a mandate to really sort of work collaboratively with other investors to try and drive change in the interest mm-hmm. of your beneficiaries, sure. but in a way that can reshape the market because we are acutely conscious that. Every individual action we have as a fund may make some minor contribution, but if we can sort of scale it and work with many others in, in 
collaborations of many multiple trillions, you can generally reshape the market and, and really get fundamental change. And that's what we're interested in. So that, that the, these sort of things come together in, in both the sort of the ethics, the understanding, and then equally the way that we practically apply it in, into our approaches. Yeah, and it strikes me from what you've just said there very articulately is that the broader definition of fiduciary duty that pension funds are being encouraged to adopt and exercise sits very well with that ethical framework that you've you've just described. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, we are a fiduciary. We have that clear responsibility, but we acknowledge that people are going to retire into a world that they do not want to be ravaged by the extremes of investments working in a negative way against society mm-hmm. because we are part of it. We're not we're not in a vacuum sort of abstract from those impacts. And so we sort of hold that reality that, yes, we need to provide you a pension. Um, we need to guarantee a certain return. But we're also acknowledging that you're going to retire into a world you're going to be have family and community that are going to be impacted by the way that we invest. And we want to ensure that it's as positive a contribution to that world and society and that we recognise our role in it. So we hold those things together. We don't think they're in conflict and, and we make a real effort to try and understand that. I don't expect we get it right all the time. And, and I think this is a continuum that you have to continually work at this. And anyone that says they've cracked it, I don't believe them because I don't think you crack sustainability. It's a continuous thing you have to work at. It continually evolves. And we know that we're continually evolving our approach here. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, we do so with a with a real belief that these two things aren't in conflict and that you are serving your beneficiaries. And when you look at climate change, you can quite clearly see this is, an issue that impacts our own ability to make the return on financial grounds, but it's also a massive ethical issue. And mm-hmm. and therefore, you are wanting to ensure that we're doing all we can in a responsible way to manage those financial risks, but equally those impacts on the world in which people are going to retire into. And I think those things can really sit alongside each other and ensure that you have credible strategies intended to drive real change. Do you find there's a kind of discrepancy between different generations in in response to that? Do you find like generally, I guess, as you get closer to needing your pension um, or receiving your pension, you potentially have less of a concern about the world that you're retiring into because it's going to decline less over the rest of your life? Do you find there's a difference in response? Um, and- no, not 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 with the beneficiaries that we are serving we've not had that if anything we've had quite the reverse a sort of um strong view that the pension fund should be embodying ethics we've we don't get a challenge the other way we get a challenge that mm. you can do more um mm. so we um do do that and so no we I, in short no we haven't had that that challenge and i i think that i i mean you do come i, I do meet people that sort of think oh you can't have ethics in the way that they invest and that in and of itself is in effect taking an ethical position that just because you're not i mean not doing something doesn't mean that you don't have responsibility and you're mm. not part of the system and that you don't impact that and so i i just don't believe that anyone is is sort of disconnected and so therefore understanding where you are in the financial system the impacts of your investments is part of ensuring that you are performing your duties correctly I like what you were saying about this sort of continuum 
And the fact that, I mean, it is an ever-changing landscape, as we know, uh, particularly in the world of ESG and new initiatives and frameworks that are coming in place, hopefully having some convergence around that so that there's clarity for people in the market. Can we look at and talk about the Transition Pathway Initiative? You've been incredibly, um, obviously, influential and a huge part of bringing that to being. Can you talk us through how that framework for organizations came to be and your involvement with it? So we we, we set up the Transition Pathway Initiative um, because we had developed a climate policy that needed a tool that could really cut through the, the challenge we were having of differentiating which companies were genuinely starting to transition and which ones were sort of spinning a narrative that was deeply complicated, but actually you couldn't really tell if they were really doing what they're saying they're doing. And we needed something that could come in, sit above all the different data sources, including a growing amount of corporate disclosure, and that could very transparently give to asset owners an understanding that this company has got a capable management, is understanding the challenge of transition to their business, is taking all the sensible steps that you would expect of a company board had equipped itself with the right knowledge, had positioned it within within the board and had the right policies and was sort of in a position to address it. And then in addition to that, was that translating through to targets that were aligned to the goals of the Paris Agreement? So where current policies are, the nationally determined contributions of countries and two degrees and below two degrees. And that with those two sort of assessments, you as an investor as an asset owner, would have an understanding really of which companies were transitioning and which weren't, and then in turn, using that information to inform the way that you engaged with companies, the kind of targets you could set on companies, the way you managed risk within your portfolio and your major holdings in carbon-intensive sectors, and ultimately um, the way that you, I mean, just the way that you understood the transition. The uses of the tool have grown considerably and I mean I can go into that separately but the 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 genesis of this was a need to very practically understand the transition in in lieu of the policy that we had just adopted again we understood climate as something that we saw as a real fundamental threat to our, our our role as fiduciaries and and in terms of making the returns that we need to for for the pension. But at the same time, we also saw it as a major ethical issue and we wanted to make an intervention that could really help shift the market and not just ourselves because we knew the more funds that understood the transition through a common lens, that in and of itself would help support the transition. And so we approached a number of other pension funds um, to come and work with us um, in an environment agency pension fund in particular and Faith Ward there and together we've developed with other funds the, the tool that is TPI and when we started we couldn't measure oil and gas companies we couldn't measure mining companies um, on their public disclosure against um, any of these benchmarks and today we can and you can now differentiate between a company that is transitioning and one that isn't and that enables enormous insights and flow through to the way that you can then manage that risk you can actually drive change in sectors and and the interventions you can make. And so that's sort of what TPI was set up to do. And it's it's also now grown into other asset classes, into sovereign bonds, into corporate bonds. 
And how are you finding corporates and others engage with you around the practicalities of implementing the TPI? Because you've been open about inviting organizations to collaborate with you to the the specific KPIs and measures uh, of, of, of how the initiative will be implemented, um, you know, becomes more real, it's more transparent, and you've invited that transparency and collaboration. Yeah, well, we've made everything open source so you can see every methodology for every sector. The, the management quality assessment is a generic one that cuts across every sector, um, but the performance one of whether the targets are aligned is, is sector specific. Mm-hmm. And, and we've been really guided by the academic team at the London School of Economics, supported also by data from FTSE Russell in the the way that we sort of constructed the, the approaches for each, each sector. And we've wanted to be totally transparent because we believe that there's too many black box methodologies where you don't quite understand how you end up with a certain assessment or result. And so therefore we wanted real transparency for the companies on where we view they are at on their public disclosure. It's also been a real reinforcement of corporate public disclosure. Companies that are sort of getting an assurance or a kite mark of a certain standard based on an assessment where they disclose information that they then don't make available to their own shareholders doesn't work for us because we as the shareholders need to see that information and be able to then assess it. And so those were sort of some of the founding principles of of TPI. It was based on the public disclosure. It was accessible. There was no paywall. It was something we wanted companies to interact with. We've developed methodologies, ones that we've ultimately determined under the guidance of Professor Dietz at LS London School of Economics, but ones that we've had consultations with industry. Um, and we have a process that when we come up with an assessment, we do contact the companies, we say what the assessment is, they have an opportunity to say if we've missed anything. It's not a negotiation of actually we want you to assess us this way. It's a, yeah, we have this additional disclosure, maybe this should be included. Um, we'll then consider that independently in, in the academic team. And then the, the assessment's made public and it's there for everyone to see and it's very transparent and you can see an individual company which metrics they meet and which ones they don't. And it's uh, and for us, that's part of the strength of the tool. It was a challenge doing it when we set up. Once you start benchmarking major carbon-emitting companies in hugely contentious sectors like oil and gas, you need to make sure your legalities are in the right place. Um, and um, so there was a lot of work to do to get to that point. But it's, um, it's a tool that's sort of assessing now 16 sectors, 401 companies, we will be assessing in the thousands um, in, in, in the not too distant future, and we will be going deeper and more sophisticated in the individual company assessments of that, those sort of top tier companies that, that are the largest in, in key sectors. How do you see it aligning to other initiatives like TCFD uh, and biodiversity initiatives more broadly? Um, TCFD is, this is a tool that, that brings to life TCFD in a practical way because it's aligned mm-hmm. to TCFD. We made a sort of a guess before TCFD of where we thought it would land and we broadly got that right and then adjusted post the sort of final TCFD recommendations. So this is a very sort of effective way of, of sort of bringing that to life. But at the same time, it goes further than TCFD because it, it has an assessment of targets and when you get into targets there's a whole complexity that that you sort of have to what what are the emission boundaries um, all the sort of scopes the activities captured by a target because companies are setting net zero targets they're doing so at the moment in the most favorable way to their business and actually 
there's there needs to be real ground rules on how you can do that and then you can compare and contrast so so in terms of tcfd i think tpi definitely brings that to life but goes further in in terms of biodiversity this this is very much a, a climate tool i don't i absolutely recognize the sort of parallel challenge of an, an interconnected challenge of biodiversity and i think the investment community is only just starting to work on that and needs to ramp up as quickly as possible to a comparable level of tools like this and approaches like this because biodiversity absolutely is is yeah absolutely critical and i just think that there's a yeah we're massively behind the curve with, within the sector on this we see a lot of financial institutions talking about their support for the just transition but little action around tpi and the adoption of tpi so i'm thinking about banks and other financial institutions here what more do you think they could or should do? Well, well, first of all, TPI as a tool will be assessing banks shortly. So you will have TPI including um, financial institutions. Um, it's We have a methodology under development. We'll be consulting on that shortly. And I think that will be a huge uh, step forward. It'll be a very different methodology to the ones you've got for like a steel sector and oil and gas because of the nature of the business is different. And we will need to profile the lending and 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 the sort of duration and all of that. So, so I think that's quite exciting as a sort of a new area of, of, of TPI's work. And I think that lever on that sector is going to be hugely important in terms of how we interact both as shareholders in some of these companies and, and equally as partners in finance driving to transition with, with entities that have made their own net zero commitments. So, so I think there's going to be some really interesting scrutiny coming into this space in that regard. In relation to the just transition, TPI is again working through Climate Action 100, the, the global engagement initiative, which is up to about 53 trillion and 540 investors. And we're working through that to establish some clearer indicators on public disclosure that companies should be making on just transition. I think we're, yeah, we will have those shortly. Um, obviously, that's a new aspect of corporate disclosure versus targets and scope emissions covered all that, which have which has been part of the sort of investor engagement narrative for a longer time, but it's moving very quickly. I do have a concern on the just transition that it is the sort of it becomes sometimes over-focused just on the the workforces within and the communities within which fossil fuel industries are operating and and heavy carbon intensive industries are operating. And yes, absolutely, 100%, we have to ensure that we're looking at the impacts on workforces, that we're ensuring that there is transition for them that is fair and equitable, and that we don't repeat the kind of impacts that you'd had on mining communities in the UK when we started closing down mines. So 100%, we need to be able to do that, manage transition well and fairly and not leave communities and workers stranded. But at the same time, the just transition as a term, particularly sort of when you come from it from a sort of perspective of, of ethics, I think is a much broader term than communities and workforces directly impacted, because I think there's other justices that need to be factored in when you're looking at the transition, justice of future generations, justice of the, the, the poorest, justice of those in the least developed countries that are being impacted most by climate change. And at the moment, just transition is, is limited in some sense to workers and communities 
directly impacted by the transition of an industry changing when actually you've got a broader set of justice issues that need to be accounted for. So we're absolutely 100% supportive of, of working through um, indicators on the just, just transition, um, but equally wanting to see some of the boundaries on that that expanded. Um, and I'd also raise that when you look at the sector like mining, you look at the just transition, okay, in climate terms, but also what about automation? I mean, that potentially is going to have a far greater impact on a lot of workforces where you could see a mine site in a developing country, which was a massive employer being automated. And potentially you could see, well, then the, the role of the mine in the local economy suddenly changing from one that's the major employer and, and then a driver of the local economy and development suddenly being replaced by automation, that break with the community being quite stark, that actually you've got an entity there extracting resources and, and paying okay a tax to the national government, but actually what's the relationship with the locality? That, that's suddenly called into question. And I think you're going to need to see a just transition in relation to automation as much as you are in relation to climate as well. And so those are some of the issues we as a fund are looking at. I think that's really exciting development. Can you say something about the TPI's ability to help organisations assess their scope three emissions? Because you've also put pressure on organisations, haven't you, to, to, to do that better? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if scope three, I mean, we look at the most material emissions to a company. And um, if you look at an oil and gas company, for example, vast majority of their impact is through their scope three emissions. So if I take Shell, it's about 85%. And when we started TPI, there was a debate that oil and gas companies are only setting targets related to scope one and two emissions, the emissions related to the extraction, transport, et cetera, of, mm. of, of the, the, the products that they then sold and other people bought and burnt. Um, and, and, and for us, the, there was a real clear perspective as asset owners no you this for us to have a credible target from an oil and gas company included scope three emissions and obviously yesterday you had votes in the us at chevron which is related to scope three and you've had board directors replaced at exxon so that they can have a credible strategy and in europe you've had a much more engaged response from european majors that has acknowledged scope three and in that acknowledgement, you've now got targets that capture scope three, but there's still issues to be determined in the sense that a credible target capturing scope three needs to be all activities, not just the products that you yourself extract and other people purchase, but equally those that you trade and also your joint ventures. So there's boundary issues of where you set on, on that too that we need to be clear on. And one of the things yeah. we're working on is a net zero standard for oil and gas that really establishes all of that and TPI can then be the tool that can really make that assessment so scope three if it's material it is absolutely part of what you should be putting as part of your climate strategy and the targets to align. Thank you and can you say something about what it means to be an active shareholder and, and positively engaged with your investee companies so the principles of stewardship that you adopt it's a fascinating thing because you're making judgments all the time as to what is the change you want to see happen what's the time frame in which you want to see that happen and um, what are the levers you're going to pull to incentivize encourage cajole force um, that change and 
who, who are your allies in, in driving that and who shares that view? Are you a minority view or is it a majority view and, and, and how far are you willing to go to sort of push your perspective? So to be an active owner, you're going to make a whole raft of sort of judgments in relation to those factors when you're trying to achieve an objective. And yeah, and it's something you've got to continually question yourself about. So I've I've come under a lot of scrutiny, some criticism as to why we were willing to vote in favour of the Shell resolution. Um, mm-hmm. We've engaged with Shell now for a number of years. We've had very clear, tangible progress from the company as a result of engagement, not just us collaboratively. And I've been the lead on behalf of a much broader set of funds that have all wanted to see this progress. So, and but then it's sort of like we've reached this point where you've got to make a judgment, and it's quite a public one as to do you back the company at this point, and is is that sufficient? And and equally, where is that in relation to the ultimate goal you're trying to get the company to? And and we made a judgment that the strategy they've produced was one where we felt okay, we're willing to back that. We acknowledge it's going to continue to evolve. We think that the company's clearly committed to continuing to evolve its approach and that it will update its strategy. And we were confident enough in the engagement that we have established and the next steps that we could give that support, acknowledging it wasn't perfect. And at the same time, recognizing that there was a time limit on how long we were willing to give the company to make the changes we want to seek. And so we signaled very clearly at the AGM, okay, we're giving you our vote today in support of this. We're not voting against the company. We think we recognize the progress that's been made to this point very much that there have been significant steps, but there's still further to go. And we expect these to be closed by this time. Otherwise, we're willing to disinvest. And so we're very transparent. So again, it's all those sort of judgments and other people could take a different position on that. And the Netherlands Um, courts have now ordered Shell, haven't they, to reduce their carbon emissions? I think I read that today, in fact. You've had a really fascinating intervention from the courts where they've come in in relation to the short-term 2030 target. It wasn't a question as to whether the 2050 target, it was whether the 2030 target should be um, increased. And that's something that we had asked all the targets to be reviewed in line with the new International Energy Agency scenario that came out on the same day as the Shell AGM. So the courts have sort of intervened here. So it's fascinating to see the courts do this and the first time this has happened. I mean, the company's challenging that. But that said, it just sort of, again, there is a desire from um, investors still to see Shell complete the transition to the kind of alignment with the global benchmark that TPI has created through Climate Action 100, which will need to see their targets um, in line with with that benchmark, which probably sort of speaks to the kind of level that the court's indicating at. Um, but we need to embed the new international energy agency scenario into TPI to be able to sort of really see, quantify what a 2030 target that's absolutely aligned to net zero, what that really looks like. But it's probably in the ballpark of what the court's suggesting. But it is an interesting intervention. So it's sort of in parallel to what investors are doing. So there's lots of pressure on the company. But at the same time, it's like you do need to move that company um, and, and work with it. Um, and I think there's a there's, there comes a point you have to make a judgment. Is it sufficient? And we've set out our boundaries very clearly. Um, I still remain confident that Shell will get to where it needs to be. And there's a commitment there to do that. But we'll see. And Tilly here is our young ambassador for the sustainability and new platform, looking to engage with 
other young leaders of tomorrow. How do you encourage Tilly and her generation to participate as actively as you do? Well, I, I think all of you, well, I don't want to make presumption, but clearly many people are going to, when, when they enter the workforce, you're going to have a pension fund. And when you have a pension fund, you, as a result of that pension fund, are exposed to the real economy and you have a slice of it. Now it'd be a tiny thin sliver, but nonetheless you do. And therefore ensuring that you are expressing your views to your pension funds is probably one of the most powerful levers you've got and ensuring that that pension fund is taking account of those views. Now, a challenge for a pension fund is when you have many many thousands of people whose interests you're serving, how you sort of distill a common view on that. But on issues like climate change, having that voice expressed from new entrants into a fund is really important. And I also think into public policy, we can have all the attention and focus on companies and disinvestment, et cetera. But actually, unless public policy moves, very few companies will be able to transition um, because you need to have public policy moving in tandem with the changes companies can do. Um, They can also influence that. So I think it's really important people are actively involved in advocacy and public policy realms to ensure that that is as enabling as possible for companies to transition. So that means issues like carbon taxes, ensuring that governments have got credible policies that are actually driving the transition as well, and also encouraging the finance sector to play its role. So I think in all of those instances, really sort of using your voice. Do you think there's enough um, communication about the power that pension funds harvest actually in this climate agenda uh, towards kind of uh, the younger generation who potentially have less knowledge in the area and also less interest potentially because it's so early on in their career so early on in their life that pension feels so far away I know from my experience and experience of my peers that a pension fund is just not something that is at the forefront of our minds at the moment and it's very I haven't heard the association amongst my friends and colleagues of pension fund and climate change and it's fascinating to hear obviously how intrinsically linked they are but do you think that is communicated well enough? No um, it's not and it needs to be significantly improved upon and that sort of financial education that people have both sort of within schools but amongst peers and, and from employers and with pension funds to beneficiaries as new entrants I think there needs to be much more explanation in in how all of that works and there are efforts through initiatives like make my make my money matter which sort of richard curtis is leading to sort of make pensions exciting with and yeah you slightly cringe on some of them but at the same time it that's quite a sort of a noble effort it's sometimes the problem i find is that efforts like that sometimes make it try and therefore boil it down to simplicity and and actually i find that quite condescending in the way that's my sort of reaction. Now, maybe it's, it's not, but it, it's, and you lose the nuance and um, it's challenging how you communicate and make that connection. So absolutely agree with you. There isn't that sort of realist understanding of the role of, of pensions. Therefore, doing things like this is really important for, for mm. people in the industry to communicate through um, all means possible around how this works and what these connections are the trade-offs we make, the challenges we have, the decisions, because they're they're difficult, um, and trying to find those opportunities to communicate more effectively. So, But pension funds, yeah, as I say, when I 
was a bit younger I, and had hair, I, I thought utterly boring and <laughs> quite frankly was the last thing I thought about. But actually, they are phenomenally influential and they own everything. And therefore, there is an opportunity to work through that in a constructive way and to reflect your values um, in, in the way that that entity invests. I think that's incredibly well third. Adam, and and on that note, I'm going to thank you for your time today and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because I think that you make a massive contribution to the climate change uh, agenda and the race to net zero. You're incredibly articulate and passionate about what you do. So thank you for your contribution and thank you for your time. Thank you.